Let's turn our eyes to God um, before we look into his word this morning. Father, we thank you that we can come and we can gather as your people on this earth. We come as those who have professed the name of Jesus Christ. And yet we have this amazing privilege to come together as your city, your community, a, a holy priesthood to come and to gather and to collectively pray to you, to collectively sing your praises and to worship you. So I pray that even now you would um, soften our hearts, give us eyes to see that which is in your word, that we might be changed, um, that we would be strengthened and encouraged in your word so that we might be a greater light and a greater testimony to a lost world around us. And we want to give you all the glory in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Because everywhere we look in our world today, we do see suffering and adversity, conflict, abuse, social media, and the internet in general, they just reveal uh, depression and despair and confusion in life. Conversations with doctors reveal the futility in health and life. People always talk about trying to find methods to help you cope with suffering. But there is no cure to be found in these secular methods. If you believe this, you'll find that there truly is no hope in what the world has to offer. No one has found a way to stop death. The world can only provide defense mechanisms to numb the pain. But the remedy is not in treating symptoms. We need the cure. We need hope. You may know what it is like to suffer financially or in relationship or even with suffering in your health. You may be in physical pain or discomfort and you likely want the pain to go away. And in the immediate, you want you may reach for a medication to deaden the symptom, but ultimately you want a cure. Now, the only way to provide a remedy is to diagnose the problem, right? You don't need chemotherapy for a broken bone. You don't need a cast for a heart attack. You need the probing and prodding that comes with the diagnosis of the disease. And this is precisely what the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis provide for us. So I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you're new to the church or God's Word, it's the beginning, first book of the Bible, just a few chapters in. And this has to be one of the most intense and significant chapters of the Bible, because what we see in Genesis 3 is, is like the most dreaded news, as well as good news. This chapter of the Bible is absolutely necessary to penetrate deep within us. It is a portion of God's Word that makes sense of all of life. And without knowing these opening chapters, we're going to be unable to diagnose what is wrong with our world and how we go on living in it with any sense of understanding. So what we've seen to this point is extraordinary. With the opening phrase of God's inspired word, we have been confronting with the amazing truth that there is an eternal God who created before anyone and anything else. And this God has created everything that now exists. 
By his word, he has spoken to the universe into existence, everything from billions of galaxies to the smallest of particles. And he knows everything intimately. He is an amazing God. And the apex of his creation was the creation of man and woman. In unique fashion, God formed the man from the dust, and he breathed his very breath into him. And the man came alive. And he was made in the image of God, unlike anything else in all of creation to this point. He was given the responsibility to name the animals and exercise dominion over them. But in the process, the man was made painfully aware of the fact that no matter where he looked, there was no helper that was suitable for him. And this was the first thing that was not good in all of creation. So God again intervened and he demonstrated his wonderful love and provision for his creation. And from the side of man came the woman created. And she was perfect for him. And they were both created in the image of God and equal in his eyes. The man from the outset was given the responsibility for leadership within the relationship and he was also given the responsibility for care of the garden to which they were to which they were placed and they were to protect it and to nourish it. But last week we saw how things quickly fell apart. They were confronted by a serpent that was the embodiment of Satan, the adversary, and like he always does, he twisted the words of God and he manipulated them in order to convince the woman that God did not really want what was best for them. God must be holding out because of his jealousy and insecurity. He didn't want them to become like him, and Eve took the bait. Adam stood by and did not protect his wife. And he did not exercise dominion over the serpent. And he did not protect the garden from the presence of evil. Fail, fail, fail. Adam and Eve had failed miserably. Their eyes were opened and things were not as they thought they would be. They gained a knowledge of good and evil, but not as God sees it. They found themselves in the midst of it and not above it. And suddenly they were ashamed. Not only that, they run and hide from the God who made them. Now it's safe to say that things are radically different than they were just moments ago. The first man and woman had enjoyed the bounty of the garden and unhindered fellowship with their God, and remarkably, they now hide from Him. And yet God pursued them. He called the name of Adam and asked for an accounting. You remember... Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And it's here that we find ourselves waiting to hear God's response to the rebellion and this resulting condition. We're going to pick up the account in uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So please follow along. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Our first point this morning is the verdict. Because the verdict comes down on the serpent, the woman, and the man. Notice that God does not question the serpent, nor extend any mercy to him. And notice that there is a verdict that falls on both the actual creature and the one who has taken its form. The creature itself, though originally was a favored species, now becomes a degraded one. I don't want to speculate on what it looked like before it was slithering. Maybe it had legs, the Bible doesn't say, but any, in any situation, it's, it's different for the serpent. The serpent is consigned to slither on its belly and to eat dust all of its days. And to eat dust symbolizes humiliation, and total defeat. I find it interesting because as we dive deeper into the full ramifications of this event and the promises that follow, the curse upon the serpent should should be like a continual reminder. In other words, in the same way that we we look at a rainbow and remember God's promise to Noah, can we also conclude every time that we encounter a snake, though I don't prefer this, um, and as it's eating dust, that God's pronouncement is true, and His promises will also be honored. And this involves the ultimate defeat of Satan and all of Christ's enemies. But look down into verse 15. Still talking to the serpent, God declares that there will be hostility that will exist for all time between the serpent and his seed, and the woman and her seed. Now the words here can refer to an immediate descendant, a distant offspring, or a large group of descendants. As you become more aware of the, the story of the Bible, and oftentimes it will involve all three. All three senses are developed and merged. So the hostility that will begin in the very next chapter with Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, will also continue throughout the rest of the Bible. But you need to realize here that God is not referring to the seed of a snake as in little snakes slithering around. He speaks of the seed of Satan himself. From this moment on, there is a battle that will rage until the Lord Jesus returns from heaven. We'll see this throughout Genesis and the rest of Scripture. The seed of the serpent refers to natural humanity whom he has led into rebellion against God. And as unpopular as this idea may be, humanity is now divided into two communities— those who belong to God and those who do not. 
because all roads don't lead to God. All faiths are not the same. Have you ever seen those car bumper stickers that say coexist? Anybody see them? I mean, the letters are formed with the different symbols from various religions. And I kind of look at this and I'm like, we're all here. We are coexisting. We're all here sharing the same space. But I think the point that is trying to be made is that we should all kind of get along and agree when that is impossible. We already coexist with one another on this earth. As Christians, we actually can coexist and love others on this shared space, but we cannot find agreement. There are two distinct groups of people that encompass all of history, those who are reconciled to the Father and those who belong to the adversary. Let me just point you to a, a scripture in John's Gospel. He says in John chapter, Jesus says in John 8, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A little further along, he adds to those who do not believe in him. He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now the thing is, As we go through life and as we coexist, we have a mandate to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't know who belongs to God and who doesn't. And the joy that that we experience is as we share the gospel, we see people that get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that become children of God. So you either stand with Christ or you are opposed to him, And a non-faith is opposition to God. So at the beginning of Genesis, each of the characters introduced are either going to be the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. One that trusts in God or one that does not believe in Him. One that reproduces unbelief. So we'll return to the rest of this verse in the next point. But for the moment, let's look at verse 16. There's a verdict to the woman, and the verdict to the woman revolves around her unique function and person. As the designated gender that would conceive children in fulfillment of the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, suddenly the situation has been altered. And yes, despite what our societal elites have been attempting to ram down our throats, there are two genders, male and female, with created created biologically different roles. Whereas the original intention of childbirth may have included nothing but a joyous experience, suddenly it's going to be a painful process to bear children. And I think this involves two different arenas. The obvious implication is that this experience itself will be physically painful. Now, I might not be the smartest person, but I've also learned a few things, and I'm not going to comment too much on the pain of childbirth. (laughs) I would be treading on fragile ground. Women, many of you know what this is. Men, just trust them on this. But I have heard that a primary motivator in this painful process is the sheer joy of seeing this miracle at the end of the experience. There's a hope that comes through the pain. But I also think that suddenly the childbearing is painful in a a, perhaps a more significant way. Because with the entrance of sin... Childbearing also is a work of vanity. 
Now I'm going to paint a very bleak picture here for the next several moments, but stick with me because we won't stay there. From this moment on, with the first man and woman, childbearing will consist of bringing children into a world of death. Every child that is birthed will die. Every child is both a celebration of life and a reminder of death. The result we will see is either death unto death or a birth that leads to spiritual life. And those of, of, with unbelieving children may be able to identify most powerfully with this verse. And as with all suffering, this pain is a direct result of what we see in this chapter of the Bible. But hang on, because we're going to also see hope by the end of this. The woman is also affected with regard to the relationship with her husband. Much has been written and surmised about the latter half of this verse, verse 16. But let me remind you of what we have already seen regarding the relationship. We've determined that the creation, with the creation of man, the responsibilities were given to him as the leader and as the woman of the helper that complements him. Each having the image of God and equal in value. This was to be the perfect relationship. Let me reaffirm this. Equal value, different function. But sin has wreaked havoc here as well, because the desire for the husband here refers to a sense of independence and even a desire to dominate the husband. And this understanding is supported when we get into the next chapter of the same word desire that speaks of the sin dominating Cain rather than Cain dominating his sin. It's the same word. So we see here that with the introduction of sin, there's this alienation and a power struggle that is introduced into a once pure marriage. Now, sin has affected all marriages now. You know this. You see it all around. I mean, can you see how relevant the Bible is, especially Genesis 3? Because you won't know how to remedy a situation without a proper diagnosis. What if struggling marriages pleaded for the grace of God in order to, be, to remain humble, to forgive, to submit to God's plan? Wouldn't that interject hope into any power struggle or conflict in marriage? But we don't always see this occur. There are constant power struggles, most likely in those who do not acknowledge God and His Word. So what was once joyful and glorious with these functional distinctives now become a potential for ongoing conflict? Now, the verdict on the man is found in the next few verses. And especially in this case, the punishment fits the crime. He ate of the fruit, and now will be through painful toil that he shall eat. God had commanded the first man to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth. However, he had failed at the first opportunity. And God calls him out. It says here, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, there you go, guys. Oh, wait, 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 it goes on. Oh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. God's like, you ate of that tree, you remember the one I told you, anyone but that one. Because you have listened to the voice of his wife instead of God and have eaten of the tree, now his work is going to be very difficult. Now, we've got to remember that Work in itself is not a curse. 
The man was already given the job of working, cultivating, and protecting the garden. Now it becomes painful toil. The ground is cursed. So not all ground is fertile. Thorns and thistles will make his work extremely difficult and painful. And this is going to be his lot in life. Man's natural ability to rule over the ground is now reversed. Suddenly, the land resists and eventually swallows him. Read verse 19. It paints a very bleak picture. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is now the future of all mankind. All humanity. Psalm 139 spoke of man's being made in secret, or some. Psalm 139, yes, spoke of man's being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Romans 8 reminds us that creation groans in the pains of childbirth. And the book of Ecclesiastes includes this glorious and bright thought. Perhaps you have it like on your bathroom mirror or on your car visor. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Are you feeling that? Do you feel the weight of that? The seriousness of sin and its consequences? This is not how it was supposed to be. As the cycle of conception reminded of the woman of death, so too the painful labor of man that would also only lead to death. What if I were to tell you that this very thing is also the good news as well? What if I said that death in itself is a blessing? Let's move on to our second point, which is the provision. The verdict and now the provision. Now, before we look at death particularly as a blessing, I want us to look back at verse 15 and what is known as the first gospel in Scripture, the proto-euangelion. Do you see it? After we saw the conflict that would arise between these successive generations and the seed of Satan, we know that the collective offspring mentioned converts now here to a single seed. He, he shall bruise your head, the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. And we know that the seed would be born of a woman. The ultimate and climactic seed would be through the seed of the woman of Galilee. Paul wrote to the church in Galatians. He writes in chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Woman who had delivered man to sin would also deliver him a savior. You see, after Genesis, the seed was promised through Abraham, through David, and finally through the woman Mary, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God the last and better Adam. This seed would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. The author to the church of the Hebrews says in in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But he will only do so as his own heel is bruised. 
Now, Dr. Warren Gagey comments that this prophecy might be fulfilled, the Son of Man, Jesus, would be delivered over to the power of the serpent and made to drink of death and hell. That the church might drink the wine of remembrance, Jesus must drink the cup of gall. Our sins were like the sand of the sea for multitude, like the depths of the sea for darkness, like the waters of the sea for weight, and it would take an ocean of wrath to cover them. Such was the measure of the cup that could not be removed. So when Jesus was beaten and he hung on the cross, and when he was put in that tomb, when the stone was rolled in front, Satan thought he had won the victory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he adds that, but he had only bruised his heel. He had forgotten what God had said in Eden. And according to God's word, there is no deliverance from Satan except through the death of Christ. That is how the Savior delivers. His heel was bruised. He suffered. He bore the punishment. He literally tasted death for everyone. But in so doing, he bruised the serpent's head. Suddenly, hope is introduced. Even in the middle of this verdict of judgment... But there's other provisions by the hand of God. Look at verse 20. Adam names the woman Eve because she was the mother of all living. Perhaps Adam already believed in this restoration to God by resting in the promise that the faithful woman would bear the offspring that would defeat Satan. And we really can't blame Adam and Eve that they they may have considered that Cain was going to be the one, their firstborn. This is the seed she talks to as... She talks about giving birth to a man, not a baby. Maybe she already had in mind that this was going to be the promised seed, but as we know, and we'll learn next week, that that's not how it played out. But from this point on, humanity has been awaiting the second Adam that would reverse the curse. All through the Old Testament, there are clues that maybe it's Noah, maybe it's Abraham, maybe it's David or Gideon. Yet none of them were sinless and sufficient for the task. Enter the last Adam. We discussed this over Christmas time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Now here we have the first sacrifice that covers sin. Well, verse 21. Remember the loincloths from last week? That meager attempt when they realized that they were naked and ashamed, they made these loincloths that were not nearly adequate. But notice the grace and the provision of God in this verse. God himself makes for Adam and Eve garments of sin and he clothes them. Adam and Eve cannot remedy their shame. Only God can, and he does. And here we see the first sacrifice that covers sin. God prepares both the provision and the application of their redemption. It's only fitting that the Lord God who would make the last sacrifice should make the first. And as he furnishes the first Adam with robes of righteousness, it would cost the second Adam to suffer nakedness and shame on the cross. The 
The redemption of humanity is never attained by our own meager attempts at morality or covering our own nakedness. Redemption of humanity is first to last from God. Even here, in the opening pages of Scripture, it is abundantly clear that man can do nothing to save himself. Because what have we seen? God pursues. God calls. He provides a sacrifice. And He clothes in righteousness. We do nothing to contribute. Salvation is of God. Please turn for a moment over to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's letters in Ephesians chapter 2. Almost all the way to the right. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, like Adam and Eve at this point. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what can dead people do? Nothing. Right? This is our state, apart from Christ. This is the way we all enter into the world based upon what Genesis 3 is telling us. What are the next two words in the verse 4? But God. Same in the garden. They were cursed, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You probably know this verse, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When it says, and this is not your own doing, it means all of salvation. Salvation, grace, he even grants us the faith to believe, because as dead people we cannot believe. God pursues, he calls, he provides a sacrifice, and he clothes us in righteousness. And yet, we continue to live out the consequences of sin in this life. In verse 22, the Lord acknowledges that Adam and Eve now have this consciousness of good and evil. And now here is where we begin to see death as a blessing. God says, lest he also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, I'm going to kick him out of the garden. This part had confused me for a while, but I believe that God's concern here is that man and women would be consigned to live forever in this dreadful state should they take of the tree of life. And so it, instead, he, he kicks them out. He directs them away from the tree that would provide this immortality and drives them out of the garden. And that's grace. 
I never saw death as grace before, but in this case, it is both. It's judgment and release. And to show that he's serious about this, you see, he sets up this tightest of security. He places the cherubim, this flaming sword that turns every way to guard the tree of life. And this is necessary. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones looks at this verse. He says that man thrust out is always trying to get back. He knows that in the garden there's a tree of life and he wants it. He still will not admit that he's wrong. He will not admit his sin. He will not admit his dependence upon God. He wants to go on in spite of God. He wants to live an independent life that will be an eternal life while leaving God out of consideration. And he has been doing that throughout the centuries. People are trying in every way they can to find life, joy, peace, and happiness on their own, and yet they can never find it, ultimately. They're always outside. They're always trying to banish death. They're trying to conquer the grave itself. They're trying to extend life. The ingenuity, the cleverness, the ability, all this, all along the line, is the attempt to perpetuate humanity without God. But the whole enterprise is tragic folly. And the first great message of the gospel, in a sense, is to say just that this endeavor is utterly impossible. The man and woman are kicked out of this first temple garden, Holy of Holies. And God, God guards his entrance with the cherubim and a flaming sword. Now, in the coming temple, the images of the cherubim were actually woven into the veil, guarding the way to the Holy of Holies. They powerfully and symbolically barred access to the presence of God. Now, do you remember what happened when the Lord Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross? That same veil was torn in two. The Son of God advanced against the flaming sword, and it smote him, and it killed him. It broke his body, and in breaking his body, it broke itself. Now the way is opened into the paradise of God, to the tree of life, to salvation, and to all his indescribable blessings. Now, have you ever wondered when Jesus died on the cross, why there's so much language revolving a garden surrounding the events of this crucifixion? Think about it. Warren Gage, he adds that, Adam turns from Eden to exile, from life to death, from garden to the grave. At the next great nexus of redemptive history, the garden and the grave will converge once again. As the first Adam had made a grave of a garden, the last Adam will make a garden of a grave. The first garden saw the transgression unto death, but the last garden witnessed the resurrection unto life. Do you remember when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she encountered Jesus and she was crying and Jesus is like, why are you crying? Do you remember Mary looked at him supposing he was the gardener? Let that sink in. The last Adam. And this is our hope. We need hope. I mean, the world has gone mad. We don't have to go very far to witness conflict and death and disease and war. And if we have little to no biblical knowledge, we're going to have a very difficult time making sense of all the mess around us. As believers in Christ and His Word, we can accurately assess the cause of sin and evil, 
And this then gives us the wisdom to know how to handle our own struggles, how to encourage others in theirs, and how to bring hope to those who don't yet know Christ. I'm going to close by looking at Romans chapter 8. I think we've got a slide for that. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is that collective seed of the woman, those who have faith in Christ, that all originate from the original command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And so in the day that creation is redeemed, we will see the fruition of this command completed. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Right? We feel the weight of that now. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in what? The pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For what, who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. So it seems like we are expected to groan while we hope. And as the church of God on this earth, we have the potential to shine forth with hope as we weather the storms of life and we cling to his promises. We'll all deal with adversity in different forms because of Genesis 3. But God in his mercy has made them temporary as he has also provided redemption in his son, Jesus Christ. And in that, we hope. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see with clarity the, both the severity of this chapter and the hope. God, even with the first breaths that we took, we failed you. And you had every right to condemn us to an eternal death based upon our rebellion against you and yet but God. In your grace and your mercy, you saw fit to redeem us. And that wasn't in an easy way. You gave up your only son who would come and live the perfect life that Adam and Eve were supposed to, but failed. And yet he would die the death that we deserve to die because of them. So I thank you for an eternal hope as we await, as we groan, as we deal with adversity in this life because of our sin, we know that it will all pale in comparison when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.